And what does that have to do with Easter and the resurrection? Well, to understand it rightly, we have to take a few steps back away from the empty tomb and into the final hours leading up to it. And when you do that, oh, it gets very dark. Because you find Jesus on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, a place he'd prayed many, many times before. It was his habit, but never like this. Because now he was agonizing in prayer, just hours before his arrest and brutal crucifixion on the cross. In fact, the Bible tells us that his prayers were so intense that his sweat became drops of blood falling to the ground because of the emotional and physical strain and pressure that he was under. This was not supernatural. You can Google this and see that this took place in other settings with soldiers who were so fearful and under such pressure before they went into battle. This was a medical condition that has a name because Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And his humanity was sensing and feeling something no other man or woman had ever felt. You see, in that moment on his knees, he was crying out to his father because he knew that the crushing weight of all of our sins was about to be placed on him as the only perfect substitute. So that instead of us, he would experience the separation from God and the wrath of God poured out on him for our sins. This one, Jesus, who up until this point had never sinned in thought or word or deed and had only known the favor and love of his father was about to become sin for us so that we could be forgiven, made clean, and accepted by a holy God. So Jesus wrestled with fear and the humanity of his own flesh just as any of us would. He wanted to recoil from and draw away from the horror of tasting and facing the experience of something he'd never known before. Crushing weight of sin. Terrifying wrath of God. Up until this point, all he'd known was holiness and purity and the love and favor of his father. Listen to how Luke describes this moment in Luke chapter 23. And coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples followed him also. When he came to the place, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours 
be done. And being in agony, he prayed all the more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What is this cup that he's begging his father to remove if possible? It's the cup of God's wrath that he was about to drink for us. And the very thought of it was horrifying to him. Yet he knew this was the very reason for which he had taken on flesh and come into our world. Not to just heal people physically. And he did. Not to just feed the hungry. And he did. Not to just right those who are oppressed and bring justice. But his ultimate mission and purpose for coming into our world from the very beginning had been to solve our biggest problem, which is not a social problem or an economic problem or a financial problem or a racial problem or a political problem. All of those are just symptoms of a much bigger problem that as human beings, red and yellow, black and white, male, female, rich, poor, all share our sin problem that would separate us from a holy God and condemn us to an eternal hell forever. So as Jesus stared into the face of this horrible hour, the physical suffering he was about to endure was horrific, but many others experienced crucifixion. It was this cup of our crushing sin and the wrath of God. As he stared into the face of this horrible hour and began to smell the foul stench of our sin rising up and beginning to press on him and felt the fiery breath of his father, God's wrath that had been stored up for all time against all sin, he cried out in John chapter 12, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus stooped under and stepped into the wrath of God for us and drank the cup dry so that we would never have to taste it or face it and so that we could be forgiven, made clean, accepted and adopted as sons and daughters forever. Let's stand together as we sing of that. I've titled my message today, What if Easter never happened? What if Easter never happened? Because I don't want us to just mindlessly go through the motions of celebrating another Easter without stopping to ask a really important question. So what? What difference does it make whether Easter happened, whether Jesus really rose from the dead or not? Well, my short answer is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. 
about how we live and why we live and what we live for. Because I hope you know that as human beings, on our own, by nature, we don't have good answers for those questions. That's why entire philosophy departments exist. Because people struggle to find meaning and purpose in life. And I don't just mean on the front end. All through life. At every season of life, you can find this plaguing people. Because we're created in the image of God. And we need more than just what this world has to offer. In 1991, the comedian Billy Crystal captured the problem well. In a scene from the movie City Slickers. At this point in his life, he's a baby boomer, and he visits his son's school on that go-to-school day and talk about your job, along with some other dads. But it so happens, at this point in his life, he's really struggling with what is life all about and why. And so he unleashes one of the most honest and terrifying monologues in front of the classroom that leaves the children ready to cry, and the teacher Wishing she had not let him get in front of the class. Check it out. Value this time in your life, kids. Because this is the time in your life when you still have your choices. And it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. 30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? 40s? You grow a little pot belly, you grow another chin. The music starts to get too loud. One of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. 50s, you have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. (laughs) 60s, you'll have a major surgery. The music is still loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. 70s, you and the wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. Start eating dinner at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You have lunch around 10, breakfast the night before. Spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? The 80s, you'll have a major stroke. You end up babbling to some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but who you call mama. Any questions? (laughs) We laugh, and I hoped you would. But good humor is funny because it's so tied to something that's true in this world. What about you today? Do you know why you're here? And what life is really all about and why you should do another day? Shouldn't surprise you that there's an entire book in the Bible... There's an entire book in the Bible that wrestles with this very question, but the book is often misunderstood and disliked because of how blunt it is and how dark and hopeless the writer sounds at points. I'm talking about the book of Ecclesiastes that is unlike any other book in the Bible because it's a book of questions instead of answers. It's a book that just peppers you with questions instead of answers. In fact, the author of Ecclesiastes, whom we believe to be King Solomon at the end of his life as an old man, is writing this book more as a jaded, broken philosopher who's looking back over his life filled with regrets over everything he tried to build his world and life 
around. And that's why the book is filled with questions instead of answers. The rest of the Bible gives great answers to the questions he's asking. But the purpose of Ecclesiastes and this author, his goal was to help you not end your life the way he did. And so he pushes you to the logical conclusions of your foundations for life. He tries to lay bare the foundations of your life. And he pushes you to the boundaries of your thinking to get you to see what you're really hoping in. And the futility of where it ultimately leads if you're trusting in anything that's tied to this world under the sun. That's a phrase that the writer uses 30 times in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. Because he wants you to imagine a closed world that has a ceiling on it. A closed world that is limited to what you can see and touch and taste and experience right here, right now. In other words, he wants you to imagine a world without God. So the writer in Ecclesiastes takes us on a tour of some of the things our world offers under the sun that people try to build their lives around and try to fill their lives with to give meaning and purpose and satisfaction. First stop on the tour, education, wisdom, knowledge. Listen to what he says in chapter one about education, wisdom, knowledge. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on man. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look. I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. You hear what he's saying? With much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Yet we live in a world that still relentlessly harps on education's the answer, right? Spend more money on education. Explore, discover, solve, learn. And there's a place for some of that. But education and discovery... A knowledge that we might gain will never solve our biggest problems or fill you with purpose. You understand what he's saying when he says the more knowledge, the more grief. At 54 years old now, I think I know what he's saying because I feel it more and more. Because the more I know, the more I have to worry about and be afraid of. Is that not true? There's, there's some truth to the statement, ignorance is bliss. We all delight in children, right? You say, oh, look how often they laugh. Look how happy they are. Why? They don't know. 
They don't know what's going on. They don't know about ISIS. They don't know about nuclear armament. They don't know what North Korea is doing. They don't know. They don't know. They don't know. So they laugh and they're happy. There's some truth to that. The more you know does not necessarily lead to peace and rest and settledness. Don't hear me saying be stupid for Jesus. We got... We got enough stupid. Don't do it to the glory of God. But don't decide this is how I'm going to have peace and purpose and meaning in life. Some of the people that I know that are the most worked up about their health and the health of their loved ones are the people in the medical field, not outside of it. Why? They know more. And it doesn't help them sleep better. They sleep worse because they know more of the possibilities of what that could be, what that symptom is and what it could lead to or it could be or it could be, that might be that. Whereas we say it's a rash, put some cream on it. They're thinking, oh, no, 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 that could be. What if, what if, I saw that at the hospital once, what if, what if, ah. And their medical professional is not sleeping well. Even getting better educated about your health, I hope you would. It's wise. Take care of your body. Get better educated about your health. But keep this in mind. Better health education doesn't guarantee that you'll avoid some of the biggest and most common killers. Did you know that? Take our heart, for instance. We know so much more today, do we not? We know about a healthy heart diet that our great-grandparents knew nothing about. We know about cholesterol. We know about good fats and bad fats. We know the importance of exercise. We know the toll that smoking takes on your heart. And so you could take steps to address all of that. And I hope you might. But you know what research is showing now? The more they know, the more they discover. What it's showing now is that the biggest factor as to how long your heart will survive is your genes that you inherited from your parents and there's not a thing you can do about that. So eat something fried. (laughs) And just sit there and watch TV. No need to buy expensive running shoes and go out there. I mean, seriously, I have friends who were watching their diet. They were long-distance runners and they had their weight off and they had a heart attack in their 40s. Why? Because their father had a heart attack. Their uncle had had a heart attack. It's genetics and there's not a thing you can do about it. Knowledge, education, wisdom will never rescue us and cannot give you purpose and hope in this life. So if it's not education, knowledge, wisdom, what about pleasure? That's where he goes next. Listen to what he says about pleasure in chapter 2. I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. You hear what he said about pleasure? Pleasure also proved meaningless. It proves meaningless if you try to build your life around it and fill your life with it to the point that that's your purpose and that will keep you satisfied. It's not to say that there aren't delightful pleasures in this world. Don't hear what he's not saying. God has given us delightful pleasures in this world like sex and food 
and friendship and music and art and nature and beauty. But those things will never be enough to fill you with purpose and meaning and hope and a reason for living under the sun because they were never designed to do so. They are simply good gifts of a good God in a fallen, broken world. But he never meant for you to take the gift and ignore the giver and say, this will do it. It won't. Filmmaker Woody Allen, who have certainly caused many people to laugh, said this in a personal interview, and I quote, it's hard for me to enjoy anything because I'm aware of how transient things are. There are times when you think, my God, life is sweet. It's nice. And thoughts of mortality are in abeyance. You know, watching the Marx Brothers or a Knicks game or listening to great jazz, you get a great feeling of ecstasy. But then it passes. And the dark reality of life starts to creep back in. Yes, it does. And if you don't know it now, you'll know it soon enough. If you try to make pleasure what your life is all about, you will need more of it and more of it. You'll have to return again and again and you'll need more and more because it was never designed to give you purpose and meaning and hope in life. Think about even the enjoyment of laughter. He's like, laughter is foolish. What's going on there? Why is he saying that? It's foolish if you try to build your life around it. Laughter's good. God gave us laughter. Think about how good it feels to laugh. And even research is showing now the benefits physically of laughing. Endorphins are released and it helps fight infection. All kinds of good stuff when you laugh. But we've got people in our culture trying to build their world around pleasure and laughter, especially young men. And it's not enough. That can't be the only thing you're known for. That can't be what your life is all about. So let me explain the place of laughter. Because so many people are trying to use it to do what it was never designed to do. Laughter is to life like the suspension of your car is to driving. It cushions the ride and makes it much more enjoyable. But it can't help you get where you're going It has nothing to do with destination. You've got to look outside of this world to know where you're going and why. And then laughter is a great gift that can just make the ride much more enjoyable. It's one of God's good gifts, but it can't fill your life with purpose and it can't give you direction. You've got to get that direction somewhere else. If it's not education, knowledge, wisdom, if it's not pleasure... What about achievement, success, make your mark in this world, do something noteworthy? Well, that's where he goes next. Listen to what he says about achievement in chapter 2, verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs. If you read all of Ecclesiastes, you'll learn This was a brilliant man. He invented things. He discovered things. He did aqueducts. He did amazing things in his day of engineering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is just a little bitty snapshot. 
I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man. This guy was the Bill Gates of the ancient world. I last heard. Bill Gates is now worth almost $90 billion and is once again listed. He lost it for a little while to some Mexican drug lord, but he's once again listed as the richest man in the world just behind Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos of Amazon fame. Even women today are doing quite well, ladies. 227 women are listed as billionaires today. But here's the real question. How happy are any of those people and stay with me how long will they be remembered regardless of what they do you guys achievement success fame as well as all the money that might come with it has such a short shelf life in our world and sooner than you would think it's who who Even if you achieve something wonderful in this world and make a difference, and I hope you would, maybe a cure for cancer or clean water or distribute food around our world so there wouldn't be nations starving when it's unnecessary. Please throw your life into something worthy. But note, apart from a relationship with your creator, God, through Jesus Christ, it still won't be enough. It won't be enough. Even if you achieve something wonderful, make a name for yourself, you're not likely to be remembered long. Who here can name the fifth president of the United States? That's what I thought. Yet James Monroe held the most powerful office in the most powerful nation in the world. Not for one term, two, eight years. Yet we can't remember a thing about him. Listen to me. Nobody's going to remember you in 40 years unless you leave $4 million to your alma mater. And then, even then, they might put a little plaque up somewhere on campus or name a building after you. But that's about it. And that's why the writer in Ecclesiastes says this about achievement. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 2.11. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled To achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. You see, in the end, friends, death mocks all our achievements. And money cannot keep you alive. If whatever you're trusting in today cannot survive the acid test of death, then it's a worldview that cannot sustain you with purpose and meaning today. It can't. So let's bring it back to Easter and answer the question we started with. So what difference does Easter make? Oh, listen. To imagine a world without Easter is to imagine a world without hope. And that is the world the writer in Ecclesiastes wants you to honestly wrestle with. It's a world where you can enjoy the bus ride because there's lots of good things to taste and see along the way. But you will only enjoy the ride as long as you do not ask the question. 
But where is this bus headed? And why? Why should I even stay on it? Let me illustrate the futility of living for knowledge, pleasure, or achievement and success, as well as all the money that might come with it. Let's pretend that this balloon represents your life. Your mom and dad meet, they fall in love, you're born. There was probably more to it, but cut into the chase. You go to elementary school, lots of glue, glitter, construction paper, graham crackers, apple juice, head on into middle school. High school, maybe you play a few sports, you get a letter jacket, maybe you're on the debate team, maybe you're a cheerleader, maybe you win some art awards. You head off to college, make some lifelong friends, lifelong memories, some of them tragic memories, some of them great. You earn a degree, maybe even marry someone. You add some kids to the picture. You buy that starter home and you fill it with furniture. You work hard to raise those kids and to give them a better life than even you had. You save enough money to try to help them through college and you send them off to college and then you build that bigger home. And you buy that car that you've always wanted instead of that minivan you've been driving for 15 years that smells like sour spit up and the carpet is destroyed. You start eating in nicer restaurants, (laughs) traveling more, and going crazy over every little thing the grandkids say or do because your grandkids are so much smarter than everybody else's grandkids. And you manage your finances well. You pay attention to investments. You try to buy all the right kind of insurance. And be ready in case you need assisted living. And even leave something maybe to the kids and grandkids. You move into that assisted living. You face a few illnesses. You go through some surgeries. And then no matter how hard the doctors work to keep you alive. You die. And at the end of your life. This is what happens. That's what the writer in Ecclesiastes wants you to wrestle with. That even if you live 70, 80, 90 years, at the end of your life, you're just gone. And you leave everything to that next generation. And the kids either rent out your house or sell it. They fight over your possessions or put them on eBay. And then they spend that inheritance you left them in ways you would never have wanted to see it spent. And sooner, much sooner than you would ever hope, you're nothing but a distant memory at a family Thanksgiving meal. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes presses you To consider life after this life. Because it's the one that matters most. And so as we close, I want to move from this book of questions to a book of answers. To the first letter of Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1. Because 1 Peter, he jumps right in with some answers to those big questions. And shows us the difference that Easter and the resurrection makes. 
Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 1, beginning of verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh, but there's more. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The Bible never airbrushes the reality of a sinful, broken world that's filled with pain and suffering and death and dying. And it also never denies that there are pleasures in this world that God gave us to enjoy along the way. But the warning from Scripture over and over and over and over is that with out God in your life, you'll never find ultimate satisfaction and purpose in this world under the sun. That can only be found in his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again, conquering sin and Satan and suffering. Oh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the very anchor for every hope we have as Christians. And it also is the only anchor of hope for all of mankind. So how does this hope become your hope today? Through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Through Jesus Christ. No one else did this for you. No one else conquered death and sin and Satan. No one else rose from the grave to prove He is the son of God. Listen to me. To imagine a world without Easter is to imagine a world where your biggest problem, your sin problem, still hangs over you. And confusion about why you're here and what you should really live for still haunts you at every season of life. A world Without Easter is the world of Ecclesiastes where you eat, you drink, and you try to be merry because tomorrow you die. I want to ask you to bow your heads. You may have festivities and family gatherings and any number of things to hurry to, but oh, I don't want you to hurry past this moment today. I want to ask you, have you experienced this new birth that Peter was talking about into a living hope? A hope that's tied outside of this world. It's not to stuff. It's not to achievement. It's not to pleasure. It's not to any other person. It's hope that's living because it's tied to something outside this world. Oh, it's tied to someone outside this world. Jesus, do you have an anchor for your soul And a purpose for your life. You can have that today. By faith in Jesus Christ. Today. Put your trust in Christ. You don't have to 
join this church. You don't have to give any money. But you do have to humble yourself and see your great need for a savior. Come to Christ. He's alive today. His arms are wide open. He's no respecter of persons either. If you're that person saying, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I am. You don't know. I don't. But he does. And he died for you. And he rose again for you. And he welcomes you today to find living hope in him. You won't find it anywhere else. If God is stirring and you're saying, I I do want that living hope. I, I need what you're talking about, Brad. God sees your heart. Simply pray this simple, childlike, humble prayer. Oh God, forgive me for ignoring you and trying to live as, as if I don't need you. I need you. I'm a sinner. This world is a broken, sinful world. I see my sin and I see my need for a savior and to be clean on the inside, not the outside, and to have purpose and hope and meaning God, come into my life by your son, Jesus Christ. I believe. I believe. I put my trust in Jesus, that he is who the scriptures say he is, and that he did what the scriptures testify he did. Save me. Have mercy on me, O God. In Jesus' name, amen.